welcome. Thank you so much for coming. I'm just so excited to talk to you um, after learning so much about all the incredible work you've done based on the Lost podcast. So I am curious to know more. And I guess I just want to start off by asking you um, if you could kind of just talk about your experience growing up being Indigenous and with all the different parts of your identity. How has it been? Um, just describe it for us. I definitely feel like that's a multi-layered question, which I always appreciate about doing interviews with you. Um, yes, growing up as an Indigenous child, um, my, I mean, I feel like my experience is unique, but it also is similar to a lot of other people who experienced um, like cultural separation and familial separation. So a lot of what has been uncovered about the uh, assimilation camps or concentration camps called um, residential schools, like that's bringing up a lot about my childhood because although I, you know, I was birthed by my indigenous mother and I knew my indigenous family that I also grappled a lot with being intentionally separated from them. And a lot of the time my my connection to culture and even my cultural education was um, stifled, if not like completely invisibilized and ignored when I was with my father's family. And so my father, um, you know, is white. Their, uh, their side of the family is they're German, French, Irish, and Swiss. And controversially so, um, through a genealogical family tree um, kind of a project, they also, I guess, realized or, or knew or just didn't talk about that, we're also um, enrolled Cherokee down the line in the records. Um, so I, I have not explored that identity at all, but also knowing that I come from Kniga and Haida, people of Southeast Alaska, we're matriarchal people. And so what's important to me is that I follow in the footsteps of my mother and my grandmother and, and their mothers before them. Um, and that takes precedence and my, um, you know, how I represent myself and the language that I learn and the things that I teach my own child are Kniga and Haida. So, um, so having said that, it was, it was quite heavy. I feel like I wasn't necessarily afforded all of the terms um, to even describe my own identity or to understand the complexity of it, mm -hmm. um, especially from a biracial household where um, oftentimes my indigenous family was ostracized or, um, talked really negatively about um, but also you know and we don't have to get into it today like it was it was a very abusive situation and um, and I think that oftentimes we think of abuse in the classic ways around like physical and emotional abuse which that had happened but um, I don't think that we do enough justice around um, abuse awareness when it comes to um, identity separation as well mm-hmm Absolutely. And I think it's uh, so um, wonderful that you brought up that like biracial identity and that like separation, because that is such a kind of prevalent issue that I think gets overlooked. You know, sometimes we think of people uh, from a specific culture and, you know, we understand that they are marginalized and um, disenfranchised. But when you look at the biracial identity, that creates a whole nother aspect to it. So that's a very unique thing you've brought up. Um, I would also just like to ask you, um, what, 
um, drives you like through your experiences, you know, you've done so much volunteering and like working within, um, you were in the Air Force, right? Yeah, I was. I was um, active duty Air Force. And then I was a federal contractor for the Army National Guard as well. Oh, okay. That's amazing. Um, so through your experiences, like, um, what have you learned? And like, what experiences have you had over the years? Oh, um, also a great, <laughs> another great question. Um, so for me, if I were to kind of connect, you know, my experience as a young Indigenous child um, and kind of weave it into the next phase of my life, which is the military, um, was that growing up in, in two very separate households, right? Where one, I was with my Indigenous family um, and and that was, that was one experience, right? And then going back to my father's side of the family um, between, you know, being a child between two homes is that that was very, um, that was very colonial. It was very mainstream America. And it was also that my father was um, active duty as well as his brother. And then my, my brother-in-law through my, my stepsister. And um, so it was a, for them, it was a natural progression, but also to them, it was almost like a solution to my indigeneity is if they continue to push me towards that system, it might shape me. And they use a lot of different words to, to describe that. But the connotation was that, um, that I was continuing to go, I needed to continue to go down a path of being more deserving or being more respectable or being more successful. Um, whereas, you know, institutional education, such as like a university was not um, on the table for me. And it wasn't because I was, didn't have the aptitude for that. Um, I was actually like in it placed in advanced writing classes, like when I was in middle school, but I think because of um, racial disparities, no one actually prepared me for that. And when they plopped me in there, you know, the, the teacher didn't care to give me any help in transitioning. So I was out of my depth and they, mm -hmm. you know, in a story that shaped me as well, which went along really well with the settler narrative was that, that I, you know, was, that they, they realized I wasn't actually smart. And I think I've carried that along with me um, because, you know, people of color and women deal with the imposter syndrome um, to such severe um, uh, depths, I think. So, you know, growing up in a military household, that was where I was slated towards. And I do, um, I am now speaking more openly about how um, I identify as, as a, a child of recruitment, like a child recruit. Um, and if I was given a different choice, I'm not sure if I would have made the same choice. Um, if I was, if I was, um, supported or more informed. So, but that, that's how it went. And so I enlisted uh, when I was 17. And I think that my experience there was that I grew a lot as a person. Like that is something that did happen. I, I um, had a lot of responsibility for someone so young. Um, I learned very, very highly technical um, things uh, very early on, um, I worked with a team of people. Uh, I mean, anything that you imagine the military to be, right? Like seamless and in step and highly coordinated, all of that. Like 
that is the environment that I was put on, put in. And that actually, um, I mean, that lent a lot of skills to, to my toolbox. And, and I would say that the work was, took a different meaning though, from going from the air force, which was air battle management, um, and specifically like honing in on wartime tactical maneuvers and how to best conduct um, war and murder versus the work that I did for the National Guard as a federal contractor, um, which was suicide prevention. And so it was, it was a definitely a big change in wanting to um, work with programs that were trying to at least um, provide support and help for, for families and those who were serving. Mm-hmm. And kind of uh, going off of that, how did your um, identity as an Indigenous person um, influence your experiences in the military and, you know, working in suicide prevention? Yeah, so, um, I mean, Indigenous people have, you know, the highest rate of service per population, but surprisingly, I did not encounter um, like any other Indigenous people, at least of the tribes of the U.S. or even from the tribes of my territory, which is Southeast Alaska, or even like the Pacific Northwest. Um, so my, I feel like innately, I knew how to perform in the military, like in that environment, I knew how to satisfy the requirements, but there was still an internal and even spiritual resistance to what was happening, right? There was a, still a level of assimilation that, um, that I was not necessarily like conforming to that other people did with such ease. And, and also I realized like through that is that, you know, the importance of suicide prevention came to me. I mean, the opportunity to take anyways, um, was inspired by the fact that I was, I was very young the first time I experienced suicide ideation and I must've been 10 or 11 years old. And that's exceptionally young. It's not unheard of, but it is on the lower end of people who experience suicide ideation or attempt. And I managed to get myself through. That's to, to some end. And, and I realized that I had done that very much alone and very much under duress. And so, you know, one thing that I wasn't aware of at that time that I've really delved into a lot more as I get into justice work and, and I have taken public health courses through university and whatnot is that there are very distinct disparities in identity as it pertains to suicide ideation um, and other like mental health struggles. And those are as, those are as, those are a result of, of things that are specifically happening in our society and not historical, but still happening. Um, so that was something that was important to me, like for society, like as a component, um, mental health and suicide prevention and awareness and even intervention. But I grew so much through diving into how it pertains to indigenous peoples and how much we really struggle with being under-resourced and under-supported, but also having um, just hyper experiences um, of trauma as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, very important things you've addressed there. And I think, you know, creating awareness about this is also so important. So I'm thankful that you are, you know, involved in so many programs and you are doing such a fantastic job creating awareness. So I'm thankful to you for that. Um, 
kind of going off of that, what are some, you know, as your journey progressed, what are some other programs that you began to be a part of and uh, what experiences do you have there? Yeah, I think, um, so being uh, like a, a servant leader and uh, a community servant, like these volunteering has has been such a staple of my life, whether it's for the American Heart Association um, or for Toys for Tots or, um, you know, other like more severe initiatives like suicide prevention is that, um, so yeah, other things that I've worked on definitely were down the same track. I wanted to do humanitarian work and uh, wellness work. And so, you know, nonprofits that I've worked with, I've helped actually establish um, and serve on their boards and get them going. It's like a veterans resource center, um, you know, in Portland and this specifically and the people that I like to work with, right, that they're the folks who want to serve you, whoever you are, however you identify and how you live your life, regardless of even your discharge status. You know, oftentimes there are people who get dishonorably discharged that don't have access to resources. And that's really difficult because when you think about people living a life um, where they hold a marginalized identity or multiple marginalized identities, like we are going to be experiencing stressors differently, but we're also not gonna fit the mold that the cis, white, hetero, you know, white supremacist, you know, patriarchal society, especially as severe as the military, like wants you to fit into. So oftentimes people are victimized by the military. And there's so many people that are trying to get their discharge status changed because of unfair, dishonorable discharge um, um, processes. And so, you know, being able to support that work where a veteran resource center can be established for any veteran, Mm -hmm. um, but especially being a safe place for queer veterans as well. Um, And so, you know, that felt really important, but then also working on the initiative to get another nonprofit started, specifically serving um, unhoused and chronically like severe unhoused um, veterans. And so we were doing outreach to populations who actually lived very far out into the woods who had minimal contact with folks to make sure that they could have access to things that they Mm -hmm. wanted as they were comfortable. Um, But then also, you know, working on things that, you know, like drives and um, partnerships within the community, you know, as president of the, of the veteran student association at one of my colleges. And so we were able to, you know, get a fund started for scholarships and by engaging community um, on campus and other student clubs, did a 5k fundraiser and an obstacle course. So we could work with the engineering club and make like really cool obstacles and stuff. And so all of these things, I think support the kind of the pillars of mental health, right? We're talking about Mm -hmm. fitness and wellness and belonging and partnerships and, and um, you know, and, and not to be limited to those things, but, you know, I went through equine therapy in a veteran, small veterans, like closed cohort and it changed my life. And it changed my life so much that I wanted to give back. So I volunteered at the barn to continue supporting that equine therapy program for other veterans. And um, so, yeah, just so much that I continue to work on, um, even at um, state level. You know, I've been invited to be on um, task force for um, like major disaster response and some and trying to um, help influence those responses as you know, it's not just 
um, you know, fire response or water safety response. But oftentimes, as we saw in Standing Rock, part of my um, skills that I could lend to the situation and my foresight was that we have to involve, um, you know, mental health support and awareness, especially with folks who are dealing with um, stressors and heightened stressors as, as it is. And so, you know, people don't often think of, you know, a natural disaster as a moment where you would automatically think like, oh, we need to do suicide prevention or we need to do mental health support because we're maybe concentrated on physical safety or um, right. rapid housing. That's, that's amazing. Um, I especially love the uh, fact that you mentioned that, you know, pillars of mental health. I think that's such a great way to think of it because there's so many things that go into mental health, including like physical well-being, and it's like so helpful um, to improving mental health. So I really like that. Um, and kind of uh, digging deeper into like um, your experiences, like uh, I, you notice you work for the National Congress of American Indians, and that's obviously such a large organization that does amazing work. So um, like what projects, can you describe like what projects you were part of there and like what work you did there? Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's definitely an institution that I'm um, very inspired by, by the longstanding work and, um, and I would say like kind of like big hitter work, right? Like these are very influential um, people and, you know, things that are happening. And so for me, um, and I'm actually like newer to NCAI. Um, so this is a newer experience for me where it took me a while to, to accept that, you know, I belonged there and that I can also, um, you know, I can travel down the paths of leadership and civic leadership. And so at this point in time, I'm, I was, um, I've been participating on the, the task force and the breakout groups for Two-Spirit um, Indigenous folks. And the next thing that I want to do is continue to pursue um, relationships around like the veteran um, groups and the veteran um, task force. And so it's a process of, you know, getting to know folks and, you know, sending emails and, and, you know, getting, getting to people between their busy schedules. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. I'm glad to hear it. Um, and I was just curious, like what, if you've uh, ever experienced challenges like um, with your, like as being a biracial person, if you've ever experienced challenges, um, how did you deal with them? Yeah, um, just in general, like in any space. Yeah, in general, it, throughout your life, if you've ever experienced challenges being, you know, biracial. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, <laughs> I would say my, my biggest challenge is uh, misclassification and misidentification. Mm -hmm. And so often people will um, will kind of like mistake me for being Asian. And so it's kind of, yeah. And so like, and I've had, you know, people, and you know, when you're doing uh, equity work, like racial equity and, and, and racial justice work is like, you're gonna have people, right? That are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And they like to lash out or something. And I just remember there was a white woman who got really upset and referred to me as like that Asian woman. <laughs> and, oh, so sometimes, and so sometimes I just own it. And like, I'll, you know, I'll be talking to folks and I'll be talking about, you know, the complexities of racial identity. And mm -hmm. I'll just go off, on, you know, on, on an important point and I'll say, and, a pr and as a proud Asian woman, and everybody just gets really thrown off and then they start laughing. 
Um, because, you know, obviously I'm not. And, and so, and it's not, it's not negative to, to be mistaken as Asian, but it is unfortunate to not be seen as my own identity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that the spectrum of indigenous identity is perceived as such in colonial U.S., right? And so even beauty standards, like regardless of whether or not um, we admit it, is that they're, they're obviously, those with kind of westernized beauty standards, I think are lifted up in kind of more like mainstream kind of beauty. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have like, I don't have any angular features. I have a soft chin. I have a round face. My eyes disappear when I smile. You know what I mean? I have like this kind of you know, little, little nose. And, and so, you know, with my own kind of like, for one, I think growing up in, in a white dominated society, I was always questioning my own beauty. Um, but then also being at the whim of a white woman that my father was, was married to, it's, um, she was very detrimental to my, to my body image. And so there was, there were moments where she would, you know, I would, uh, I would be trying to figure out how to fix my hair or do my makeup because I had no one really to do that with me. And um, at that point in my teenage life, like they had basically um, really successfully pushed my mother out of the situation and kind of used me in that, in that instance to kind of be that crux. Um, so I was really struggling to, to find my own as, you know, awkward teenagers are. And she came into the, into the bathroom and she just kind of propped herself up on the doorway as I was trying to, print myself and she says you know you're not beautiful and you're not pretty you're cute and sometimes that's just what you have to work with you know and so these things really stuck with me and seeing like you know like I was an early 2000s kind of teen right so we had extremely low rise jeans and like yeah. extremely like we had Paris Hilton you know what I mean it was just yeah, like I that's remember. like furthest from what I look like yeah. <laughs> um but then on the other spectrum the kind of beauty that's being held up I think and like more and I I love it that our um that our beauty and our fashion is being held up in more mainstream media but oftentimes there's you know very you know, fuller lips and more angular noses that are, and, you know, more narrow faces and stuff. Um, and so I find myself just in kind of weird positions all the time, right? Like oftentimes, you know, I, I feel like I am furthest from, from white, right? Like whiteness. And, and then other times I'm like, I'm very starkly aware of how actually like pale I am on the spectrum right and so it's like oftentimes depending on which situation I'm in I'm either too native or not native enough um mm -hmm. and and all of that so yeah it can be really complicated and wonky and in the end I'm just like constantly assuring myself of like no matter what I look like or whatever I still love myself and then I'm just gonna try to believe that <laughs> yes you go <laughs> No, I mean it though. Like when I first met you, I immediately thought, oh my gosh, she's so be You're so beautiful. Like, oh, I mean that. You're going to make me cry. Thank you. <laughs> I really did. You know, I just admire all of you so much and everything you do. I mean it. Right. You're the sweetest. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but you know, beauty can be so complex. And and one thing that I appreciate so much as being like someone now in my 30s, right? Is that that the body positivity movement and self-acceptance movement, right? And 
and kind of denouncing like white Anglo features is so much more prevalent and loud and aware and unapologetic with, you know, like Gen Z and our teens and everything. Yes. And so for that, like, it fills my heart so much to just see y'all living like your best lives and just being like, yeah, like, I'm worthy. I'm beautiful. Like, I'm a badass bee. <laughs> yeah, like, I am who I am. It's your problem if you don't accept it, you know? <laughs> yes. So I'm like, yeah. yes, babies, you're amazing. <laughs> wow. I of course, y'all that. don't want me to call you babies, right? You're young adults. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but we need more like adults like you who are like supporting the Gen Z's and like allowing us to like totally own ourselves. That's we we appreciate the support. <laughs> yes, I love that. It, okay, so it brings me to this memory actually, and it wasn't something that I publicized or whatever. And even they'll be like, "Stop!" But um, you know, like when you support youth and being who they are. I mean, that means like all spectrums, right? And not even, you know, and something that's really controversial in the activist movement and folks who are progressive or think they're allies is like, you know, they're like, well, yeah, but not anarchists, right? Or not, um, you know, folks that are like, um, you know, like Black Bloc and such, right? And the Youth Liberation Front. And and there's some connotation that goes in. There's some behavior that can be worked on as far as like intersectionalism and lending to the movement. Um, Cause oftentimes there are many white identifying folks, but there was um, the youth where there was a kind of like anti-Amazon um, demonstration. And there was probably only like 22 of them, but there was, I counted 38 police, including two riot vans and like bike cops and everything. And I was just like, oh as a very unsuspecting, like 30 something, you know, your old mom just walking downtown. Right. I just didn't realize that this was happening. I think I said, Hey to him. And I was like, yeah, I support you. Like, good job doing whatever you're doing mm -hmm. and stuff. And took a picture <laughs> oh, that's and, cute. um, and I was like, yeah, I was like, have fun, just be safe. And then I, and then when I walked around the corner, that's when I saw just the exorbitant amount of response to these youth. Yeah. And and regardless of like whatever political ideologies that they are aligning with at this point, also leaving room for the fact that they're exploring like what, what it is that they do believe in. And I think that that should be done safely so long as mm -hmm. they are also be, like being safe in some ways. And I think that safety is a spectrum, right? We have conservative people who think that just existing is unsafe, right? Like their presence is unsafe to them because it challenges their ideas. Um, so I was just like, with my friend who was also, you know, very just unsuspecting. We were just wearing like, you know, our just basic Seattle kind of outfits or whatever, like brunch. And I was like, I'm just gonna walk like near them like the whole time and just watch. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I started filming and I think just the presence of like a mom and some other kind of like basic Seattleite with me was enough to kind of at least let them know that they're being watched, right? Cause the yeah. police, escalation is is oftentimes disproportionate to the activity mm -hmm. yeah well that was fun that's such a sweet <laughs> I was like story. don't you dare intimidate these children <laughs> yeah oh we need like more like phoenixes walking around Seattle protecting everyone <laughs> right and then I'm like are you guys thirsty do you need some snacks <laughs> I love that that's great yes. But when it comes to youth programming, like something that we're working on right now with uh, DNVP and Sequel Out, like we've partnered with, um, so uh, 
a conservation, um, environmental conservation group, as well mm -hmm. as um, an organization that helps um, at-risk youth become engaged with their community in a positive way. And they're, so they're doing a nature trip. Um, and so I'm glad we partnered. And so when I told my program partner that I have experience like with youth and coaching sports and stuff like that and children's mental health, what I meant was like, was like elementary age and not teenagers. Uh -huh. And so they're like, yeah, go ahead, Phoenix. You can do some programming for this upcoming outing in the woods. And I just feel so out of my depth right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this is definitely a moment where I can own my shortcomings. And so I've reached out to other folks who do, you know, that specific, like, um, like young adult programming and stuff to, to partner with me to get, to get through it and make sure that I'm doing something that's actually beneficial you know, for the youth that they might enjoy. Mm -hmm. That sounds really fun though. I would love to go on a nature trip. I'm, um, I'm glad that they are getting to experience that. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And I think also incorporating like, um, you know, indigenizing spaces, right? Indigenizing wellness. And, you know, there's only so much we can do in the city. And, you know, I love that we have, you know, plots for farming and, and growing and stuff like that. But it's really the experience of being able to just separate from city life and getting out and like, right, just getting rid of the buzz and the noise mm -hmm. and the advertising yeah. and all of that and learning about the land and learning about um, the plants. So I'm hoping we'll be able to actually kind of do like a kind of like a very light model of like learning about indigenous like edible plants um, mm -hmm. and then also just like light, um, like kind of survival skills. So, you know, like I'm hoping that these kids might look back and be inspired by this week out in the woods and want to, you know, incorporate hiking into their life. Right. And what if they go out hiking on their own one day and like wander off the trail, and like get stuck overnight and they can think back to that moment of like, oh, I met these tribal people from the area and this veterans program. Right. Um, and indigenous people there and they taught me that I could eat these things or I could make this kind of a shelter or need to you know navigate this way yeah for sure and I actually was just like interested in asking you this um, as well like because I'm so interested in just like DNVP and supporting in any way I can so I was just wondering if I could possibly volunteer or help out in any way um, possible we would love that so much Yay. <laughs> Absolutely. 150%. Yes. Thank you. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. We can definitely connect about that then. Also, there's plenty of work to go around. I realize in starting up like new programs, all of us are just like sweat on our brow every day. Like it's fine. We got this. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really rewarding. Um, especially in like these moments makes it really rewarding too. And being able to partner with more people and have awesome volunteers like you. That's great. Awesome. And coming back to your book. So you mentioned about a little bit of a trailer, which was uh, really interesting, but tell me more. What, what is it about? Um, where did you get the inspiration to write it? Oh yeah. So, <clears throat> so I'm going to go grab it now while we're talking. <clears throat> and so the book is titled unconventional combat. And what it is, it's a, a highlight feature of about, I would say, I think there's five of us <clears throat> who are veterans of color and um, majority femmes. So I think there's only one male identifying person who interviewed. And so the author is um, Michael Messner, 
And he also wrote another book, um, which I also have. Um, And that primarily highlights um, like male combat veterans. But through his work um, with veterans and through this book and through um, Veterans for Peace when I was in um, uh, leadership there, Um, So Veterans for Peace is an international peace organization um, specifically comprised of veterans of multiple eras. So the author of the book is Michael Messner, and he had um, already published a book that was mostly focused on combat male veterans. Um, And through his through his work and getting acquainted with um, with veteran work um, and such over the years, that he saw that there were, was a specific narrative that he wanted to support, which was um, the struggle, internal struggles of um, marginalized veterans within these kind of liberal leftist um, social justice movements. And so this is highlighting, um, you know, the intersections of identity and, and also like um, very, very open struggles um, that we have. I really like that. Um, some of these things in here are said so sharply, mm-hmm. but it's because we've said them as such. And he has, um, has held that up. And, um, and so I, I definitely really appreciate um, the care that went in into making this. And it's often an experience that we have as, as BIPOC femmes and queer femmes is that, um, you know, you think that these progressive spaces and liberation spaces are safer places for us. But I think that we actually get further traumatized um, in so many different ways and have so many struggles um, in those spaces that ironically get dominated by uh, male and white folks. Mm, That is pretty ironic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Do you mind um, sharing one of the stories? Yeah. Um, Let's see. I had, you know, the one, the one thing that I did love in here was that um, I was, I was reading this to a friend and I realized that an excerpt out of here had mentioned me talking about a marginally competent man. I don't think any book that has that phrase in there is a winner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think there's just so many good stories to read. I think, um, I think one in here, you know, if I were to, to, to not necessarily do a reading, but kind of summarize the the story that was depicted was that when I was organizing for About Face, which is another um, anti-war veterans group um, that is arguably more progressive and diverse because it is post 9-11 veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan war era, um, is that yes, the Vietnam war era is very much dominated by older white males, right? Like very prototypical kind of like boomer types, but it really was not all that different. It was just younger versions of the same white men who knew more vocabulary, um, who might be willing to go further out on the ledge. Um, And so there were more attempts to be inclusive and there was more presence of like, of women and folks of color, but we were oftentimes very, very highly tokenized. And so when I went to an action camp a few years back, um, the Highlander, Um, Center in Tennessee, which is a very historical um, location for grassroots organizing and civil rights, is that we had set it up so there are different tracks for um, planning um, direct action. And so there was an art track and there was um, another track for blockade. So, you know, folks who put things up or um, chain themselves to things and 
Um, and a couple of others, but the one that called to me the most because of my education and my background and because of um, the way that I think was like logistics and planning. Um, and so when I went in there, I realized like I was the only woman, um, but then I was the only other person of color that as a participant, um, there was one other person um, who was a man and he's black. And so I feel like the dynamics there were like, Kind of like overly performing inclusiveness like oh wow that's so great that you're here there aren't usually women i definitely support you being here and like oh like what's your perspective phoenix like kind of like uncomfortably including me in some mm -hmm. ways <laughs> um and so you know but it was still like they were still performing it and so i was like this is something we can still work with but at the end of the week when we were supposed to put all of our planning together and all of our education and all of our cooperation and practice and stuff like that into one mock um, action. And, you know, we had planned it for, um, it was like an arm arms conference, arms trading conference and stuff. So it was like really intense, right? And they had people who wanted to dress up as like mock SWAT and police and everything, which was a little bit problematic, a lot of it problematic actually that they were so into performing that piece. And so something that had happened was um, I said, my child has been in protest with me. And so therefore, like there's a children's nursery, they will be there, keep everything separate. Like she's recently been traumatized and tear gassed by the police in Portland. Um, and so they did not do that. They used the nursery to drop off all of their gear and their zip ties and their helmets and their vests. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was very bad. So like me advocating for myself, there was a lot of lash um, and a lot of kind of misrepresenting me and my character as being problematic when I'm being harmed. So, mm -hmm. so on top of that, you know, I'm in this group and it comes down to the final planning stages and I'm ready to go down like the op board, right? Operations order and, and go through this plan and get everybody moving. Um, and, and it was like this white, you know, six foot conventionally attractive, like white male who's also gay comes in. And it was just like the whole thing, like, excuse me, bitches, I'm in charge. And I'm just like, oh God. And I couldn't get in a word edgewise, right? And so I let it happen and we struggled and we struggled. And, you know, there's this moment where like he was being vulnerable and like excited about something. And so part of me in this, uh, what I was saying in this book was, I was talking about the weaponization of white tears and not even just with white women, but men weaponizing their vulnerability in certain places where they get so much attention and I was just like and it describes me being so frustrated of just like okay well you're looking at me like I'm a dumb woman and a dumb Indian which is my stereotype that I live with right and uh and meanwhile and then it quotes me saying and meanwhile this guy can't even effing spell and so yeah and I was just shocked that you know something like that was included in the book but I also kind of support a more unapologetic accounting of things that we really struggle with right our our anger and our, you know, being socially unacceptable by, you know, saying a curse word, you know what I mean? Or not giving in to like, oh, well, this person's crying. Like you obviously need to be soft and caring. It's like, well, no, because what you're doing is actually an entire act that harms somebody like me. Mm -hmm. That is so powerful. You know, that book, um, I'm sure has a lot of interesting and unique experiences. So I don't know if I can read it. Is it, is it okay for me to read or? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. 
Um, it's called Unconventional Combat. Um, there's a website. I think if you Google it, it, it comes up. And um, and so one thing that I was um, talking about with my program partner is that we're considering um, actually planning like a speaking engagement um, and like a, a book signing engagement where we can actually fly Michael Messner out and we're able to <clears throat> to share the book, um, mm -hmm. maybe sell some copies and do a reading out of it and couple that with creating space for other, even you know, veteran and non-veteran organizers of color and diverse identities who are experiencing um, a lot of challenges within liberation spaces and allow them the space to kind of speak their truth and be more open about our struggles because I think that is really something that's gonna, I mean, one, I think we should have a place to process our grief and our struggles. We should have an opportunity for support, but then also we need to push the edges back and start you know, continuing to, to demand more space. Mm -hmm. And you use that term liberation spaces. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what that is? Um, yeah, I think it means a lot for, it means many things for a lot of different people. Um, but when I think of liberation spaces, I think of, you know, grassroots organizing, activism, um, even, you know, nonprofit work and, and pushing, um, you know, policy work to create, change that benefits you know marginalized peoples um but then also changes things that are oppressive um institutionally or socially for oppressive people so we are therefore working on um you know being living a more liberated life being able to exist in a more liberated way where our humanity um, is seen and honored and our needs and wants are met beyond basic you know human rights mm -hmm. that sounds really nice i would love to kind of not on obviously it's important for veterans but if only like you know we could have that platform for like all BIPOC people and just so they could you know really accept themselves that would be nice um yeah I mean with my my own experience I'm like Asian Indian and obviously I you know am extremely grateful that I sit in a place of you know comparative like privilege but I you know myself used to live in a I used to live in Iowa so that was a state where, you know, obviously there's a lot more white way out there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said that's way out there. It is. Yeah. And um, it was a pretty small town. And so I used to live where there were a lot of white people. I didn't really have much diversity in my classroom. It was I was pretty much the only like Asian kid in my entire classroom. Um, and even at lunchtime, like I used to be scared of taking out my lunch because people would judge my Indian food. They would say, you know, it smells bad. It looks bad. You know, you're eating, your food is disgusting. All sorts of like really nasty things. And then I came to Seattle and it was a lot better, but I still feel like, you know, it's better than Iowa, but I still kind of experience some of those things sometimes. So I am right there with you in terms of liberation spaces or just places where we can like celebrate ourselves and our identities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I am so sorry that, that that was an experience that you had to endure and it's completely unfair. And I think that those things like impact us and we think about, you know, even we talk about decolonizing, you know, uh, we talk about like food justice, right? Like that is food justice is being able to like eat what is historically and culturally and even genetically, you know, well for your body, mm -hmm. right? Like that's a part of your family, like in love is attached to food. When you're, when your family prepared your meal for you, like they did that out of love 
And how dare anybody say that that is anything negative mm-hmm. at all. And also like we need to be well and healthy in our body, like our body and our spirit, like it knows, you know, it knows us, it knows our family and it knows what we need. And so like, I know that I feel better when I'm eating more traditional foods, you know, like to my cultural region, like when I'm eating more like salmons and, you know, specifically like the berries that are from my region. And, um, even when you know my grandma gives me a big bag of like seaweed that my family has, um, has gotten, you know, that season and, and dried and everything. And, and, um, so yeah, more spaces for us to just be us because it also impacts our health. And so if we're not eating the foods that are good for us and we're not being able to, you know, just freely accept the love of our, our families, um, through food and, and everything else is like that is that manifests through our physical health as mm-hmm. well. Absolutely. Yeah. 